This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today is part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma. We present an evening of conversation on education in the state of Washington with Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedahl. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Thursday, October 1st, as part of a panel of current and aspiring office holders here in the state. For the full conversation, go to soundcloud.com WSIP sets. And finally, we speak with Chris Rakedahl. Chris Rakedahl has been serving as Washington Superintendent of Public Instruction since 2017. Previously, he was representative for the 22nd Legislative District. And we're just so glad to have him on as our final guest this evening, uh, Superintendent Rakedahl. Uh, hello again, sir. How are you? It is good to see you. Thank you. And can I just say, uh, folks need to get their tails in any way they can to support everyone you just heard. You have a future representative there, a future senator there, uh, the next woman in Congress there, a future county council member there in a re-election effort. Absolutely phenomenal candidates. The greatest year I have ever seen for that kind of talent. So please, please step up for those folks. I couldn't agree more. I have been so extraordinarily impressed with everybody on this panel. And, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on a number of things that we've discussed tonight because you've been listening. Uh, and let's start with my discussion with Representative Dolio about testing, because I know that this is important to you, too. Um, she said that she supports testing that holistically measures student growth beyond standardized tests. So in an ideal world to you what is what is student testing in washington look like to you and, and what would it measure in an ideal world we don't have a federally mandated test that is only two subject areas that's given to kids every single year third through eighth grade and once in high school for the sort of concept that if you just test kids more it will raise rigor that's not what it, it does it simply doesn't it spends a ton of money by the way mostly to replicate what we already know about students because we spend so much time preparing for exams and testing them that we don't actually get into the work of growth. So in an ideal system, uh, it's twofold. One, the state does need to be accountable. And I believe in something called a National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's called NAEP, and I would encourage people to take a look at it. For significantly less money, I'm talking about saving billions across the country in testing. You sample in every state a representative sample, so you can tell with statistical significance, students of color, students with disabilities, um, grade bands. Uh, but you then get a meaningful comparison on how we perform in the state relative to other states, and you can figure out if we're doing better or worse on math, science, English, language, arts, or any subject. So that's the federal accountability where we could save billions of dollars, tons of time, and focus on learning. The more important thing is let's trust teachers. We have what's called formative assessment along the way. Teachers are trained professionals to assess student learning. And if you look at all the research, every great researcher in this subject will say it isn't about a standardized test. Think about high school, for example. For four years, six periods a day, two semesters, you get 48 different evaluations of students by the time they graduate from trained professionals across multiple subjects. Student attendance and their grades and the rigor of the classes they take, far more predictive for their success than any test. Bottom line, blow up all the federally mandated tests, just use one that does a sampling methodology, it'll tell us everything we need to do about state performance and trust educators with formative assessments. 
You're getting a bravo uh, in the comments there. So uh, definitely connecting on that. Uh, Representative Dolio and I also spoke a couple things. Uh, One was the challenges of hiring a diverse body of educators in the state. I will ask you what steps you're taking to encourage that. Yeah, many. Number one, you've got to raise the profile of the expectation that we are going to be an anti-racist and and, and culturally responsive system. So no person of color wants to come into a system where they feel isolated. No one wants to do that, but particularly in education, which is really, really brutal. Um, So you've got to create the expectation. So ironically, it starts with a really clear message that we're going to educate students to be really focused on racial equity, that they're going to see their history differently. They're going to understand the contributions and the heroes in mathematics and sciences and build that culture of we have built something in this country, uh, not this artificial history that in many ways has a very, very narrow perspective to it. Once you create that and you build that, then a lot of young people in the system today say, you know, I want to teach in that system. Now I see myself and now I want to develop the next generation. So intentional recruiting, we have districts who now travel the country to recruit in places that are far more diverse than Washington really intentional financial aid for students, particularly students of color who want to teach. Um, I personally think this should be a public benefit so significant that there shouldn't be tuition for teacher prep programs, uh, therefore no loans. So like you can do dramatic investments, and I don't mean big, like it wouldn't cost much to completely change the dynamic of who says I want to teach. Uh, So that, and then the other thing you always got to remember is it's not enough to get people in the door. If it's not a place where they feel professionally supported, they don't get mentorship and they can't really connect effectively with professionals, uh, they won't won't last in the system. Uh, So there's lots of things we're currently doing like that. There's more that we can be doing, uh, but being really intentional about student recruitment uh, into the pipeline and elevating our paraeducators who are far more diverse those are paying off awesome in some districts. I, I just love what you said about it all beginning with with teaching a curriculum that is really centered in racial equity. Uh, I, I think that's that's just spectacular. Um, I will also ask you about what I spoke with Jamie Smith and Janie Hitchin about, which is Pierce County Schools now moving to open to students uh, as soon as possible. Just wondering what your thoughts are about that decision. Yeah, so I know as parents, parent of two and everyone else, we want our kids in school. That is a uniform belief that, that we've built a system of support for them. Yes, great content, but but nursing supports, their mental health supports, food and nutrition. It is the place we want our kids. We cannot do it too fast. Just because you click over some threshold from high to medium or medium to low, you can't just open the floodgates. I talked to two colleagues last week around the country, my peers in Georgia and in Oklahoma, rapid openings in suburban uh, uh, Georgia, immediate closures because they went too fast, didn't have an effective strategy to do it slow uh, with intent. Oklahoma, western part of the state, opened rapidly, remained open, but in some districts, half of their kids are on a 14-day quarantine already. So now you're trying to run an in-person system while you've got to create individualized learning plans for kids for, you know, two, three weeks at a time at home. So I know parents want to go fast, and I really, truly respect that. I want my kids in school. It's got to be methodical. Our guidance is very clear on the threshold to open. We have very clear guidance on what you have to do to keep students and staff safe when you get there. But every expert around the country has said, start with early grades, maybe just kindergarten or kindergarten through third grade. Start slowly, build that expectation understanding, and then continue to grow that. If you try to open up an entire school district or even an entire building to all students or even half of them all at once, um, unfortunately, it'll be more disruptive in the end. 
What you're talking about is something that I was referring to earlier, which is the new normal. And, you know, you are the voice of the school uh, system here in the state. And I'm wondering how you feel in that position. We should set expectations for parents and students for what is really just a very uncertain future right now. Yeah, we keep using the word grace in our office and in our system. Um, I know there's a lot of anxiety. We're in the middle of a national culture war. This was building before COVID. So the guttural response to crisis um, are people either withdraw or they lash. And I would challenge folks to find this place where they are advocating, where they're clear about what they want, but give grace to folks who work as professionals, whether it's in education uh, or anything else. We have done this once every hundred years. So nobody living today has managed through a public health crisis of this magnitude. So we don't have all the answers. What we have is science. What we have, hopefully, is respect for each other. Uh, baby steps now that we've watched entire countries like Israel crank up and shut down again. The UK is on the verge of shutting down again. It's grace right now we have to offer. Steady progress, respecting that everyone's doing their best uh, to put their best foot forward. It's what we owe each other as human beings in a civil society. Um, and when we do that, I think we'll get uh, good outcomes and people will see where the benefits uh, can, can, can be right ahead of us here. Thank you for that. Um, I think those are wonderful words. In the time remaining we have, I do want to touch on a couple of issues about your opponents um, because I think this is something that touches on almost every uh, aspect of this year's election in the state. Um, And we'll start here. We know that she has lied about our 90. We know that uh, she has lied about her educational credentials. And now there's an organization that she lists as a 501c3 that doesn't actually have that status. And I I, I spent all day trying to formulate a question around this. And I'm just going to flat out ask you, in a position where character and integrity matter, what does this mean to you? What what are your thoughts here? Uh, So this is a tough question for me because um, unequivocally, I will tell you that this job ironically doesn't have tons of power. It has relationship power. You build relationships with the legislature, with school districts, with the governor's office, with the business community, with labor community. It is a relationship business and it's entirely about trust. And so I've never questioned an opponent in my life in terms of their passion to want to do the work. Um, This is the first time I've run against somebody who quite literally um, has four or five things in the voter's guide that has now not checked out by objective, you know, uh, folks in the press. And so it's really unfortunate. uh, on a very serious note, you know, politics aside, when you list your organization as a 501c3 and it's on your website, there is a big presumption by people who donate to you that they can write that off on their taxes uh, as a charitable tax deduction. And I truly, truly hope and, and pray that there are not folks out there who are in legal jeopardy now because they wrote something off on their taxes based on what was seen on that website. And that is for them to figure out, and for her to hopefully communicate to them about the truth of this. But uh, it's a job about integrity, about honesty and humility, because you're going to make mistakes and people are going to get frustrated with decisions. But if you if you can't be truthful in a campaign, I've always told every candidate who's ever asked me about running, I've said, you will govern exactly as you campaign. You will govern exactly as you campaign. Bring dignity to the campaign, honesty, transparency. That's how you'll govern. Be on the edge of truth all the time. That's how you'll govern. So I think the values are just massively different here. 
I want to talk about the ripple effects here because I think there's a concern that because most voters are not as informed as everybody, all of you watching and listening tonight, they're not going to question the disinformation that's in the voter pamphlet. And that's a problem, we know, because the GOP is trying to use that disinformation to drive turnout among their base. What are your thoughts on how we overcome that? Well, this helps a lot. I mean, obviously, we have to be in communication with each other. Um, you asked an awesome civics question earlier. Um, I wish I had gotten a bill done 20 years ago in my career, but as superintendent, we did get a civics mandate back in our schools. And so uh, this kind of stuff is coming more and more for kids. It is sad that the really objective and high-quality press corps is uh, largely depleted. There are some papers and a few folks in TV still really committing some resource to it, but it's tough. And so the White House race and the governor's race and, you know, uh, catastrophic wildfires and COVID, these are dominating headlines. And it is hard in a season like this for people to get all the way down to that nonpartisan school superintendent race to ask the hard questions. Some of the press are doing that. And I really appreciate it. Um, we need folks to ask really, really hard questions and then elevate that as a function of news, not just editorials. It is newsworthy that the person who wants to run our schools um, has had so many questionable, well, you know, untrue things. Well, I mean, speaking of reporting, there was a report in The Stranger today by Rich Smith uh, detailing how R90 is being funded indirectly by the likes of Anheuser-Busch and, and Juul, the vaping uh, company. And this is, you know, ostensibly about uh, care for our kids. What, do, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first, let's remind all your listeners that Ref90 is to affirm the legislature's passage of comprehensive sexual health education that's age-appropriate, medically accurate. It helps reduce sexual violence and assaults against our young people. 29 other states do this. Parents have a ton of rights in the bill. So I always want to ground this in like the truth of this thing. It is interesting. Um, I'll observe a couple things. Uh, one, folks should should know that most of the money on the other side of this thing went in to get the signatures. So they've spent most of the money, at least in the current PDC reports, they could certainly dump in more later. I, I think people should be very alarmed at the amount of folks who do not see this issue as an educational issue or as a young empowerment issue, but they're bringing a religious value to our public schools. You've heard me say this before. I deeply respect individual religious liberty and family's right to opt their kids out of this. That is different than saying no child should learn this because my particular religion doesn't agree with you. So I'm really bothered by that money. The other thing that's a little more subtle, if I just take 30 more seconds, is that the, the, the House Republican Caucus has put money into this, mostly on the front end to get those signatures. And I'd be careful for people to say, well, then let's see who gave to them. To make an assumption that some of those donors wanted this money to go against Ref90 is, you should be careful of that. Most of the folks who donated to a pack like that thought that the House Republicans were going to support Republican candidates who share their interests on a host of things. I would guess some of them are pretty frustrated that the House Republicans used that money not to support candidates. They supported a ballot a signature collection issue based entirely on lies about what's actually in it. So I'm guessing there's some questions being answered uh, these days about why that money was used that way. I'm sure that's true, and I'm sure those questions are being asked behind the scenes as we speak. Um, let's end here on something of an up note, if we can here. Um, I'll ask you about the ERFC uh, projected budget. Uh, the, the Economic and Revenue Forecast Council recently cut the state's projected budget shortfall in half, down from $8.8 .8 billion. This was 
good news, potentially. Um, I'm wondering how that changes how you conceive of what may be possible with our schools over the next few years and how that would impact uh, a second term for you. Yeah, so um, our forecast council looks at two things, the revenue coming in, which is definitely stronger than they originally predicted in June, and they look at caseloads. So what kind of demand is there going to be on the public sector? Um, I tell everyone it's good news, but also be a little cautious, right? Um, clearly, uh, the game's being played by this White House and, and, and congressional Republicans in the Senate. They don't want more relief. So we are going to run out of that cash flow for vulnerable families and and so it's good that we saw that. I'm still a little cautious. Here's what I am clear about, though, and I think you and I talked about this in the past. Four billion or eight billion should not be a presumption of austerity. Austerity is fundamentally a practice of racism and a practice of oppressing people who need the most support. The reason we have a public sector is it defends our absolute constitutional rights, but it also takes care of the most vulnerable and creates the biggest opportunity, whether that's early learning, K-12 or higher ed. So when people say the first thing we have to worry about is cutting budgets, it's their way of saying, let's continue to go backwards for people who need it the most to protect those who have, have more resource. So it's going to have to be well thought out and patient, but let's start with where we can get progressive revenue. Let's be really candid about where we're subsidizing things that probably no longer need it. Um, at $4 billion over three years, that's pretty doable. I think they can avoid cuts altogether if they take a holistic approach to this. Um, please, everyone, never believe that austerity is somehow a responsible practice if it doesn't start with what's fair and equitable revenue, where can we find efficiency, then you talk about cuts if you absolutely must do it. We are not in a position where we must cut right now. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, would you like to give us your campaign website before you go? chrisreykdahl.org. Everyone wants to put an H in it. It's not R-E-Y-K-D-A-L, uh, chrisreykdahl.org. I really appreciate uh, you all. It, it's, it's unbelievable, but in 15 days, you're getting your ballot. And 16 days after that or 17 days after that, the election's over. And, and our side's going to vote early because we know the tampering by the feds on our mail system. Um, so if you are somebody out there advocating, phone calling, supporting one of these amazing candidates that came before me or us, Think about this as an election that's over in 16 days, because the ability to influence voters after that will be much harder because so many ballots are going to come in so early. Thank you for framing it that way, an election that is over in 16 days. So we got to put the pedal to the metal. Superintendent Rick Dahl, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks again to Superintendent Chris Rakedall. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysiers. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.